With that, now let's turn to our passage for this morning. And Pastor Dwight Yu from Renewal West Philly uh, is going to be preaching the word for us. And so as he comes up, let's turn to our Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. And I'll be reading from the ESV. Mark 2, verses 13 through 22. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Thank you, Pastor Luke. Good morning, Renewal Mainline. So good to be with you guys. Um, For those of you that don't know me, uh, I serve as the lead pastor down in the city. Um, at Renault West Philly, and we have another campus now in, in the Center City area. So greetings from your sister church. Um, and again, for me, I, I do know many of you. I've known many of you for years, so it's kind of like, for me, a little bit of a family reunion for my family and I. And for those of you I haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, I'd love the opportunity to do so after service. Again, just being in the Renewal Network, I consider you guys family. So um, just a wonderful privilege to be here this morning to share the Word of God with you. And I'll have the privilege of continuing in the book of Mark uh, as we continue on in our series. Um, And so let me invite us to bow in a word of prayer as we come before the Word of the Lord this morning. Jesus, thank you that you are present in the city. Thank you that you are present here in the main line. Thank you that you are present in our midst this morning. Thank you that you make yourself known through your word, which though it is an ancient word describing things long ago, absolutely has contemporary relevance because it is an active, it is a living word. And we know that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, dividing joint and marrow, able to discern the thoughts and hearts our intentions of our hearts. We invite you to do just that. As we search your scriptures, would you search our hearts? Expose the things that you want us to see, including our own sins and areas of change, not simply to leave us there, 
But as you expose these things, you also expose our need for a Savior, and you reveal yourself to us through this very same word. Help us to see you this morning more clearly. Help us to fall in love with you a little bit more this morning in response to the way that you already love us. And may it not just end here with us in this room, but may the love of Christ pour forth from this place be shared to the many whom we are connected with and networked with in our work, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed that uh, whenever a particular movie or an athlete or a band or a restaurant starts to rise in popularity, there is a concurrent rise in haters, right? So if you, if you watch some YouTube video that's going viral, that's really popular, and it's like 350,000 thumbs up, you'll always have the thousand thumbs down, right? Haters are going to hate. You always have them. I'll admit when it comes to modern music, I myself am a hater, and I'm always like, music's not what it was in the 80s when I was growing up. Um, some of you are like, yes, amen. Um, but that's basically what's happening in our passage today. Jesus' popularity is rapidly rising. The crowds are seeking after him, and as this influence and popularity grows, so does opposition to Jesus, namely by the religious leaders at the time. And we saw this last week, the scribes, the Pharisees. And at first it seems as though their main issue with Jesus was just doctrinal, just theological. But what you begin to see as we continue on in this study through the Gospel of Mark, what you'll begin to notice is that it really isn't ultimately even about the doctrinal and theological stuff. They were simply fearful of the fact that Jesus was stealing the influence and power they once had. It's deep-seated jealousy that the crowds were flocking to Jesus and listening to Jesus and not listening to them. And so in today's passage, after upsetting uh, the religious leaders as we studied last week, you guys studied last week, uh, Jesus declares this man's sins forgiven. He ruffles their feathers again over two specific situations here revolving around food. So in the first half of our passage, they have an issue with who Jesus is eating with who he's feasting with. And in the second half, the issue is that his disciples are not fasting. All right, and so we're going to study this passage under these, along those lines, feasting and fasting. That's it. Those will serve as our two headings, feasting and fasting. And we're going to draw out um, some relevant points for us this morning. So first of all, feasting. Jesus is once again beside the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching, and he's teaching and he's ministering and encounters a man named Levi, who we learn is a tax collector. And he calls to Levi to follow him. And that doesn't just mean literally follow me. It means, I want you to be my disciple. Follow me. Now this would have been considered absolutely scandalous absolutely scandalous given Jesus's time, or given Jesus's stature at the time, and Levi's status at the time. The crowds recognize Jesus to be this great teacher, 
this, this great, obviously in, uh, endowed with the, the spirit and power of God, and possibly there were already rumblings that this might be the Messiah. He was held in tremendously high regard. Levi, on the other hand, as we read, was a tax collector. He's sitting in a booth collecting taxes when Jesus calls out to him. Levi's job as a tax collector, uh, what he would do is all the people who traveled around that region, the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and anyone heading south, he would tax them for the things they had. Uh, Whether it be fish, produce, um, he would charge a tax for whatever was brought into and through that region. Now here in America, paying taxes is something we're not necessarily thrilled about, but we know it's necessary. And when we meet people who work for the IRS, you know, we don't consider them scum. But in Jesus' time, they were. Tax collectors were considered scum. And the reason is because the local government, Herod at the time, he charged a certain amount of tax And as long as the tax collectors gave that amount to Herod, they were allowed to charge whatever else they wanted in addition to that so that they could pocket the rest. And so here these tax collectors were fleecing the people, giving those taxes to Herod and the Roman government, who he was basically a puppet for, And they're fleecing their own people, lining their own pockets, and getting rich off of it. One commentator describes how they were viewed in the time of Jesus. He says this, When a Jew entered the customs or tax service, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court session, was excommunicated from the synagogue, and in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended to his family. So when Levi's mom was sitting with the other moms in the community talking about their kids, when the subject of what does Levi do for a living comes up, his mom probably left the room. Time to go, because it was a thing of complete shame and disgrace. Yet knowing full well the kind of life this man was living, Jesus calls Levi to follow him, invites him to be his disciple, and he did just that. And not only did he just start following Jesus, he actually hosts a dinner at his house for Jesus and then invites all his friends, invites all his friends to meet this Jesus. And verse 15 tells us, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now Mark's use of the word sinners here does not refer to sinners in general, like we're all sinners. He's using it in a technical sense to describe in the eyes of the Pharisees and scribes a class of people who disregarded the religious laws that they had codified because that was their responsibility. They were supposed to be the ones who interpreted God's laws and they came up with all these laws of what what true righteousness looks like. And so The sinners were those who disregarded all of that, disregarded the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes, had no interest in abiding by their laws, and so they were considered religious outcasts. And so we read in verse 16, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with these tax collectors and sinners? 
Because in this culture, to eat with someone was to deeply identify with them. And it worked in such a way that if you ate with someone of a lower social standing than you, then in the eyes of the people, that would knock you down a few rungs of social standing too. On the other hand, if you ate with someone of higher social standing than you, then that would kind of bump you up in the eyes of people in your social standing. In the eyes of the religious leaders, here, Jesus is eating with people who are utterly indifferent to the religious law, and not only indifferent, they flaunted it. These are the people Jesus chose to be with. And Jesus responds by saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, that phrase, it's not the well that need a doctor, but the sick, was actually a famous, well-known proverb at the time that Jesus is just repeating. It was widely acknowledged by the religious leaders to be a true statement. The religious leaders themselves agreed with this proverb. It's not the righteous, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. They wholeheartedly agreed with it. They agreed in principle sinners needed to repent and be reconciled to God, but in practice they made it impossible. Let me say that again. They agreed in principle sinners need to be reconciled to God, but in practice they made this virtually impossible. How? Because they refused to interact with. They refused to engage the sick. Here these people believed themselves to have the truth, and yet they refused to hang out with the people who needed that truth. Think about how ridiculous it would be for a doctor to be like, I don't like hanging around with sick people. Yes, I'm a doctor, but I really dislike unhealthy people. Like, what are you talking about? That's your job. Your job is to hang out with unhealthy people and to help them. The religious leaders agreed in principle. Sinners, the sick, need a doctor. But in practice, they avoided the sick. And as a result, they just maintained the status quo. And so the challenge, the question we're confronted with this morning is very simply, are we so different? Are we so different? Do we not so often as Christians agree in principle that those who are living in denial of the truth of the gospel, those perhaps living in overt rebellion, hatred of God, hostile towards God. Of course we would agree, in principle. They need the truth. We agree in principle. But in our practice, so often we simply maintain the status quo. Because we are unwilling to engage those who need that very truth. Are there any people in your inner circle 
Are there any people seated at your literal dinner table, like here, that when other people around you saw that person, saw you hanging out with them, saw them at your house, that it would raise an eyebrow? Whoa, never imagined you having a friend like that. You guys are friends? Is there anyone like that in your life, or do all of our friendships fall along safe, culturally and religiously predictable lines? Of course you guys are friends, I mean. A sad reality is that Christians, they make the best evangelists in the first two years of being a Christian. You know that? Christians are more eff most effective in mission and evangelism the first two years of being uh, a Christian. Ironically, when you know the least, <laughs> when you don't have all this theological knowledge, you just know the gospel, Jesus saved you, that he's real, that he loves a, a, a lost and broken world, and they make the most effective evangelists. After two years, it drops off drastically. You know why? Because most people don't have any non-Christian friends after two years. Your entire life just becomes about the church, and there's certainly, of course, an importance of the priority of the covenant community, but that's all we end up doing. And we cease to actually engage the world out there who needs the very truth of the gospel that we know. The great physician sought out he sought out those in need of a doctor, and he calls you and I to do the same. And the tremendous encouragement here is that Levi had another name. Some of you might know this. And his name was Matthew. Yes, that Matthew. The author of the Gospel of Matthew. And it's very likely that the first four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, knew who Levi, a.k.a., they knew who Matthew was, because it's very likely, hanging out in that region, he probably taxed them for their fish. Come on, guys, time to pay up! And so it was highly likely that when Jesus says, Levi, come on, follow me, these guys are like, what? Levi? Jesus, are you serious? But we all know, read the gospel, how the story ends. He would indeed end up following Jesus, and God would use him to invite many others to Christ as well. Brothers and sisters, may we never put limits on who we believe God can or cannot change. And brothers and sisters, may we never confuse the order of how that change happens. If you notice, it's gracious invitation first, then transformation. In invitation by grace. Invitation, then transformation. That's the order of the gospel. But when you mix that up, that sends and presents the false understanding of Christianity. Meaning, if you transform and clean your life up first, then we will welcome you. That's the opposite of the gospel. And in fact, that's what most other major religions teach. Do good, be right, act right, do all the right things, and then God will invite you in. No, the gospel is 
God extends his gracious invitation. And all you need to do is accept this free invitation of his love. And when you do, that's when you'll be transformed. Invitation, then transformation. But there's another piece that's important to draw out here. Yes, Jesus may have been hanging out with quote-unquote overt sinners in need of the great physician, but what the religious leaders failed to see is that they were sick too. They were sick too. They were sinners too in need of the great physician. And that's the irony of this whole exchange. That in their own self-righteousness and pride, they were blinded to the fact that they were sick too. You see, from heaven's perspective, it would have been just as shocking for Jesus to sit with tax collectors and prostitutes, just as shocking to sit with religious leaders, <laughs> because they're sick too. They're deeply unrighteous too. The religious leaders, as I said, were the ones to codify what righteous living looked like. They set the standards of what righteousness fleshed out actually looks like, and they were sh very strict to keep those rules. And they judged others who broke those rules, even though the standard of righteousness they set fall far short of the true righteousness God requires. You read about that in the Sermon on the Mount. You have, heard the, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, what he's doing is not introducing a new law. What he's doing is saying all the religious leaders had it wrong. They cheapened true righteousness. As if it's just about tithing your mil, um, dill and mint and, and, and if you could just do all these little actions, then you're righteous. They cheapened it. But you see, in their minds, they were righteous. Because they made up the rules and they followed the own rules that they themselves made up and judged everybody else who fell short of their rules. And once again, a similar dynamic happens, sadly, in our churches today. We codify a way of looking and acting as Christians that falls sh far short, actually, of what true righteousness really is. We settle for our Christian culture codified version of righteousness and feel good for it. Our sin may not be as obvious and overt as others, but we are just as desperately in need of the great physician. You see, we churched people. I grew up in the church. My dad was an elder. I've been PCA as long as I can remember. I was baptized as a whole thing. I grew up churched, and we churched people have a way of being alarmed, alarmed by things like sexual promiscuity. <gasps> that girl, do you know what she's like? Drug abuse, do you know what that guy's like? Do you know what really happens behind closed doors? Oh my goodness. Foul mouth cursing. Oh, my ears. But then we tend to tolerate respectable sins. As author Jerry Bridges wrote an entire book called Respectable Sins on this problem. We tend to minimize such as things such as pride, discontentment, 
unthankfulness. Yes, that's a sin. A complaining heart. Impatience and irritability. Materialism. The love of money. Our sin may not be as obvious and overt as others, but we are just as desperately need, in need of the great physician. And the more we come to terms with that, because that's the truth of the gospel, isn't it? That we often cite that famous Jack Miller quote here at Renewal. Cheer up. You're far more sinful than you realize. <laughs> You think you see your sins? You only see the tip of an iceberg. You're far worse than you know. But at the very same time, you are far more loved in Christ than you could ever dare hope for. And it's when you take that gospel to heart, when you see how the great physician has welcomed you to the table in spite of your sin, your heart begins to overflow with love and gratitude, not only to Jesus, but a love and desire to invite others into that very same love. Second, let's move to the second scene. When the religious leaders take issue over the subject of not their uh, feasting, but this time their fasting. In the Old Testament, only one day technically was designated for fasting, the Day of Atonement. You can read about that in Leviticus 16, 1-34. But by the time of the prophets... By the time of the prophets, it became customary to fast on a number of occasions beyond just the Day of Atonement. Namely, occasions of mourning and deep repentance. They would fast. By the time of Jesus, the Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays with regularity. And the disciples of John the Baptist also had their regular fasting days. So it definitely caught people's attention when they looked at Jesus' disciples and they're just stuffing their face. It's like, these guys never fast. We've never seen them fast. And when confronted about this in verse 18, Jesus begins to explain by using the analogy of a wedding. And in summary, he's basically making the point, fasting is an expression. It's an expression of a deep, deep longing for God to fulfill his promises. That's what fasting is, right? It's expressing by refraining from food. You're, it's expressing this, this heart and this posture that says, God, I long for you to fulfill your promises. More than I even long to, for physical food, I desire for you to fulfill your promises. Well, you see, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. All his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And therefore, it wouldn't make sense to fast while Jesus was with them. The fulfillment was there with them. It wouldn't make sense to fast. It wouldn't fit the moment. That would be like going to a wedding, a place of celebration. I just officiated a wedding last night. Beautiful rooftop overlooking Center Cities. Gorgeous time. Wonderful time. How inappropriate it would be for one of the guests to just be like all somber, all angry. Like, what is your deal, man? This is not the moment for that kind of attitude. Although admittedly, I was thinking about my, my fourth child, Lily, my one and only daughter now. I have three boys and a girl. And I was like, man, maybe on her wedding day, I might be that guy just 
It all depends on the guy, of course, but... But it's so inappropriate. Like, what are you doing, man? This is a joyous celebration. And likewise, it would have been inappropriate to be just mourning, somber, when Jesus was there. Jesus then shares two metaphors of patching an unshrunk cloth onto an old garment and putting new wine in old wineskins. And he's just further elaborating on his point. The point of both metaphors is to stress simply this. The old ways of doing and being, the old ways of doing and being need to be either left behind or reassessed in light of Jesus. The old ways of doing and being need to be either left behind completely or reassessed in light of the coming of Jesus. And to fail to do that would be detrimental, even ruinous, hence the imagery of bursting and tearing. Now, as an immediate, uh, an immediate application we can draw out of this is, as Christians, we still fast. And Jesus says this. There will come a time when they fast after he departs, after he ascended again. This is Christians, we start to fast again. Maybe some of us during Lent have made a, a practice of fasting. But you see, it's so important that we fast in light of what Jesus has done. Everything has to be reassessed in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. So specifically, why do we as Christians fast? We fast not because we're punishing ourselves. It's not penance, like, oh, I'm so hungry and in pain and maybe this somehow makes up for my guilt. Jesus bore all of our guilt. He satisfied the wrath of God, all the punishment we deserved. He already took so fasting is not about making yourself feel bad and punishing yourself. Jesus took all that for you already. Rather, being secure in God's love, being secure in God's forgiveness, fasting is about choosing to give up good gifts like food. Good gifts God has given to get what is best. You give up the good to get what is best, and what is best is to get more of God. That's what Christian fasting is about. However, I think there is a much broader application to this passage than just fasting. Again, the principle Jesus is teaching is that simply continuing old ways of doing and being without considering how the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the gospel, changes our doing and being will be destructive. Old ways of doing and being need to always be reassessed in light of Jesus. So again, in light of Jesus, fasting would change. In light of Jesus' coming, the approach to Sabbath would change. More on that in next week's passage. The early church had to figure all this out. And it wasn't easy. Right? There were new values, new practices regarding food, circumcision. These were profound changes they had to figure out. Given what people were used to, this was a radically different turn. It wasn't easy, but it was necessary. It was necessary because you don't just slap Jesus on to old ways of being. You don't just slap Jesus on to old ways of being. 
the Apostle Paul did not say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a better behaved, more enlightened version of themselves. It's not what the Apostle Paul said. He says, no, they are a new creation. When Jesus makes his home in your heart, he doesn't just paint over the old colors, change some furniture around, like I so often see in the city, these bad flip jobs where they just put pergo and there's like obvious holes in the floor and you're just, whoa, what was that? It's covered over it. That's not what Jesus does. He strips you down to the studs and totally remakes you. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity put it like this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You know that the, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not even seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. It's not just fasting practices. Brothers and sisters, every aspect of our lives Every aspect of our lives, our habits, how we go about doing everything that we do must be reassessed, reshaped, reformed in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead of just trying to slap a little Jesus on to old ways of being. What does this look like? Let me give a few very real world examples. I have been heartbroken recently over story after story of toxic leadership in the church. Just straight up abusive behavior by people named pastor. And these folks can preach the gospel. They can talk about it. They can teach it. But when you peel the layer of the church back, what's the actual operating system? It's not the gospel. It's all worldly ways of being, worldly approaches to power. It's just slapping Jesus on to worldly ways of doing things. And it's so very destructive. D.A. Carson says this of churches. Ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up, in fact, of natural enemies. What binds us together, listen to this, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. In the light of the common alle- this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have been all loved by Jesus Himself, 
they commit themselves to doing what He says. And He commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. But too often, friends, too often churches merely reflect the common and expected tribes. We only hang out with people who vote like us, who view COVID and how we should approach COVID like us, and view race like us. And this is what we sadly so often do. We simply reflect the very same tribes and divisions that exist in this world. What we call fellowship is not so different than the social circles we see in the world, but Jesus' name is slapped on top. But the ties that really bind us, what we really value is not the ultimate allegiance to Jesus. It's just my similarity with you because we vote the same or we think the same. May this not be. What makes the Christian gospel unique and I believe moving forward in, the con- in this country, in the climate that we live in, what will shine the brightest light of the gospel and bring the most glory to Jesus is when they see in this place people who should be natural enemies and maybe elsewhere in the world treat each other as natural enemies, but in here, because we all bear the name of Jesus, we love each other. And we call each other family. Simply slapping Jesus onto old ways of being is destructive to others and to self. To others because if something other than Jesus is driving and shaping the core of who you are, instead of reflecting Him to the world, you become a hindrance and stumbling block to Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, think of all those who've been turned away from Jesus because of these examples of toxic leadership believing that being a Christian means identifying only with one particular party or those who felt ostracized by the church because they didn't fit the culture. Ultimately, it's destructive to others, but also yourself, because when you hold on to your old ways of being, your old idols, that means you're seeking something other than Jesus for your sense of security, satisfaction, and significance to your detriment. Author Anne Lamott says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out God hates all the same people you do. That's when you know you're on the road to idolatry. The only thing that frees us from this is to remember, friends, the bridegroom has come. He has come. And in Him and Him alone do we find our deepest longings satisfied. And like Levi, as we leave the old life behind, as we flee from our idols, and we feast at His table, He will begin to renew you from the inside out, every aspect of your life, for your good, for His glory, and for the sake of others, that in you and through you, they too would meet Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we humble ourselves before you. We invite your spirit to honestly search our hearts. 
Forgive us if there is in us the same heart of the Pharisees who in principle believe the world, the the sick need a doctor, but in practice, we are not going. And may we not be moved out simply out of shame and guilt, but may we be moved out as we are reminded that while we were sick, while we were still sinners, Jesus invited us in his gracious invitation, saying, come follow me. Invitation, then transformation. It's not clean yourself up. It's I know you can't clean yourself up. I know you're a mess, but I love you as you are. And when you humble yourself and just accept my love, I'll take care of the rest. It's that truth that transforms us to go forth into this world to be humble, and graciously extend that invitation in the name of Jesus to those who are sick. And Jesus, we also confess, we invite you to search our hearts, and if there is something in us that Lord has made something else central, and the way that we treat others is not, the way that we treat others even in our own midst right here is, is not by putting you first, but our relationship with others is determined by other things, other values. Would you take center stage once again? Would you be central? So that indeed your church would be this place that is a beautiful gathering of those that might in fact even be natural enemies, but by the power of the gospel have now become not only friends, but family forever. Do this work in our hearts. Do this work in our particular church. Do this work in Renewal West Philly, Renewal Center City. Do this work in all true churches who believe your gospel truth because we too are still weak. We too are still struggling in our sin. But we have met the great physician who is indeed healing, who is indeed bridging all the gaps, making peace, doing what only he can do, uniting the hearts of all those who might otherwise be enemies, but uniting them in his blood under the banner of his name. Do this for your great glory that our watching world would see the church not just as another divided place, but as a great display of what the gospel and only the gospel can do. Make natural enemies friends forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll invite us to rise and we'll close in this song. Thank you.